The scripture reading comes from Romans 8, 18 through 27. This is the word of God. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we, we wait for it patiently in the same way. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is the word of God. This is the word of God. Amen. Good morning. I'm Pastor George O'Hite. I'm the associate minister here. And uh, we're going to be going through our sermon series about kind of good news or uh, um, I call it the anti-cynical sermon series, uh, which is uh, about some important things that, were, that are true. Uh, the first one uh, was that God is in control. That was last week, Pastor Howard's. Incredible sermon. I thought it was incredible um, uh, last week, and uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna work on on talking about hope a little bit this week. Um, any chance that light can come down just a little bit? Because uh, I can't see anything. I feel like Jake. To- uh, never mind. I'll stop. <laughs> hope. <sighs> you see the first two words of our passage this morning it says, "I consider." I consider. It's a, a, an important uh, little word. Is uh, it seems something like reconciling, um, uh, understanding, giving account for, somewhat mulling over, maybe calculate, measure. Uh, literally, uh, is used to reconcile the books um, as we consider something. And I want to consider what Paul is considering this morning. I want us to do that together. And that is what this passage and what you've seen about this passage and you've heard it rattled off a couple times. This word hope. Hope. Talk about a loaded word nowadays. Uh, it is uh, exactly what uh, Dr. Cornell West was teaching on here in this building not too long ago, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it is President-elect Barack Obama's uh, main buzzword, uh, hope and change, right? It is, uh, it, is, uh, it is on the cutting edge of what we're thinking and we're talking about. But I want you to know that it is not a new phenomenon. I know that sounds really odd to you that hope is not a new phenomenon. But it's thinking about it, considering it, trying to reconcile it to the world, trying to get the data all correct, is also not new. Who's heard of Pandora's box? 
Pandora's box. Pandora's box is a Greek uh, mythological figure. Uh, Pandora is the first woman. Call her Eve, if you will. Uh, she's the first woman in Pandora's box. We usually use it uh, when we say we started to do something and now we opened up Pandora's box and we can't get all the stuff back in. You can't get it all settled together again. Well, it comes from the story uh, that goes something like this, um, depending on the account, where, where Zeus has given Pandora... Two vessels, and I hate to break this to you, they are not in fact boxes. They are urns, and it's a mistranslation of a poem about 400 years ago or 300 years ago that we made at Pandora's Box. But it's really like an urn, a big vessel, a big vat for wine or water or something like that. So you get, And they're covered. And he gives her those, so it's Pandora's vat. Um, uh, and Zeus gives her two of those, and one is filled with all sorts of evils, and one is filled with all sorts of good. And so the legend goes, out of her curiosity, she starts... Uh, she opens one of them, and she quickly realizes that she opened the one that had all sorts of evils. I'm not sure, in fact, if she knew that beforehand. I, I don't remember how the story goes exactly. But she quickly realizes that, she, and so she puts it the top back on, but it can't. It keeps still oozing out, topped, as it were. Uh, it's all going to come out. And so uh, the texts vary a little bit here, and, uh, but it says that uh, all, in terms of the order of things, but all sorts of things come out like... Uh, like uh, uh, ills, toils, sicknesses, famine, all that kind of stuff. And depending on how you, uh, what story, which text you're reading, she either goes back and opens the lid once more, or uh, it just is the last thing to seep out. And you know what the last thing to seep out is? Hope. Greeks considered hope a very dangerous and powerful idea. Now, not everyone knows exactly how to interpret that. Like hope is a bad thing or hope is a good thing or, you know, it's, it's this last kind of little bit of, uh, of goodness that's stuck in the dregs of the urn or, or that people said, you know, hope is a bad thing and it's one of the evils. Um, and we have that same feel for us. Don't get your hopes up, right? We don't want to do that. Or better keep hope alive, one or the other. Davidson's t-shirts that says, I believe, which basically says, I hope we make it past the final eight or the elite eight. The fundamental question that St. Paul is dealing with, and the fundamental question I believe in all of our hearts is this, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Considering what we go through, is it worth it? Nietzsche, you know, the guy who said that God was dead or wrote about it, took the Zeus story to be the cruelty of all cruelties. Zeus did not want man to throw his life away, uh, no matter how much the other evils might torment him, but rather to go on letting himself be tormented anew. To that end, he gives a man hope. In truth, it is the most evil of evils because it prolongs man's torment. Chipper Nietzsche. But Hebrews says that hope is the anchor of our souls. And Paul has something to say about it here too. Now, if you listen to the way rhetoric is done, you will marvel at Pastor Howard's ability to use a preposition. 
you don't know this, you don't notice this, but for those who are in seminary and otherwise are rhetorically minded, you'll realize that he can do that is in and of and through and around and of and unto. And he's amazing at the use of the preposition. He is my sensei, but I do have so uh, uh, and uh, I am not able to, to do like he does. But I got three prepositions for us about hope as we walk through this hope amid hope toward and hope in hope amid a hope toward and hope in that's what this passage teaches us today hope amid the fall look at the first uh, verse 20 for creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope the Bible is a realistic book in its setting, its context says that we live in a fallen world. We live in a frustrating world for creation was subjected to frustration. And you get later and we'll get to it very soon about how frustrating and how the ways in which this frustration occurs in our lives. But I was just, uh, as many of you know, I was gone this week and I meet weekly or I meet Yearly for a week with my friends, uh, uh, from, some friends from seminary, and we get together and get all in each other's lives and pray for each other. And this is our ninth year, and it's gone really good. We call it the Schlupfwinkel, which Pastor Howard reminds me only white people would go to the Schlupfwinkel. Uh, uh, that's got to be a white guy meeting. Uh, so, uh, so we go to the Schlupfwinkel, and one of our brothers. I wish I had my ESV with you. The uh, ESV, which is the is, is a brand new Bible put out by Crossway, it has become the standard of uh, of, of kind of regular Bibles now. He has written, um, he wrote the, for the study Bible the notes for both for for two of the books there. He's an incredibly gifted linguist. He studied under Alan Millard, who is who uh, uh, in Britain is one of the pro- most profound uh, ancient Near East specialist Semitics. Uh, uh, linguists that exist and understanding of culture. An Egyptologist, this is a person who's incredibly gifted. I like carrying far, smarter friends than me around, so I feel a little bit smarter about myself when I, when I hear him talk and stuff, uh, so I can drop words and stuff like Egyptology. Uh, but uh, he, he, he can't find a job. We're in our third year of praying for that brother. Every year, coming back to Schlupfwinkel. Praying for a job. He's published in one of the most important books, that's, uh, uh, studies of the Bible that's happened in recent history. He's done incredible work. As he gave his talk and talk, we usually go for about an hour and a half eight and talk and tell us how we're doing. He said, the word I feel is futility. What I experience, I'm staying, I'm moving over here, is Futility. Offered jobs in, uh, uh, seemingly had a job in New Zealand. Uh, these are all at uh, academic institutions in Australia. Cambridge, all really close, but no cigar. The U.S. as well. Frustrated. And you need to hear this, that the context, the amid of hope for the Bible is the broken world, the frustrating world. Broken economics, broken relationships, uh, broken systems, broken uh, 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 international relationships, things like war, murders and mayhem, droughts and decay, natural disasters. Frustration and folly. The middle, the, the amid of hope in our world is the fact that 2,000 children do not have a place to sleep tonight in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
That is the soil, the amid of where hope starts. The Bible is a realistic book. It talks about that as a frustration upon us. And it goes on to not just have hope amid this kind of frustration or the, of the fall, but about our emotional lives, the internal lives that we have as well. Think of the, the way this is described, the metaphors it uses. The first one is there, there's actually a sound and a sight of, of what it means to be, uh, to be amid this hope. And the sound is groaning. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present. And I do not know what that's like, but I saw it. And it looks like it would include some significant groaning as I saw the groaning happen. Child rearing, child birthing, groaning. But we ourselves, even who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait. Groaning is also the soil of hope. It is the amid that we talk about, the, where it starts, where the Bible begins talking about hope for us. And it also says, but hope that is seen is no hope at all in 24. Well, who hopes for what he already has? You must understand that hope, um, that the idea of hope in the scripture means that you can't see. There's a cataract or a blindness over you or a semi-blindness over you. You can't see it all. It's, it's fuzzy and unable to detect and it doesn't always have clarity. Hope includes that as well. And that, with this uh, groaning and this uh, this kind of lack of seeing, this cataracts, uh, it talks about confusion. You see in the in the verse after that, we do not know what we ought to pray for. This is the Apostle Paul. If anyone should have ought to know what he was supposed to pray for, it should have been Apostle Paul or Jesus, right? This is Apostle Paul. He doesn't know what to pray for. And he knows we don't know what to pray for. The amid that hopes come out of, it's amid of the brokenness of our emotional lives, of the, of the frustration of our emotional lives. And it says that the Spirit has to help us in our weakness. Weakness, kind of a prerequisite for hope. The Bible is a realistic book. It's a realistic book that has childbirth as its symbol of, or as, as its image of which, uh, the, the place where hope must begin or must be cultivated out of. And we spend, and this is where we need to be really watch ourselves, we spend most of our days trying to pretend like we don't groan. Trying to pretend like we see really well. Trying to pretend like, uh, like uh, that we're not weak, but we're strong. We spend our days trying to talk about the clarity that we have and the visions we see about what's supposed to be. And, and yet, we, it doesn't work. We try to say, well, we see things clearly, or we try to silence the groaning by our addictions to things, to people and substances. And the Bible's freeing us and saying, you want to hope. You want to have life-giving hope. You've got to begin with that soil. What is it amid of? It is the fall and the feelings of frustration and emotion and all that is there. And there's a complicating reality that is added to that. And this is when it's really hard. Because hope, I've just described the kind of hard side of hope. But there really is something beautiful and encouraging about hope that both Christians and non-Christians and uh, alike can kind of jump into. Look at the other word that's used in terms of our emotions of, of what, where, where hope is amid. And that is eagerness. Look at 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. In verse 23, not only so, uh, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemptions of our bodies. You know that hope has this burning desire, this kind of um, 
this kind of like uh, light on, turning on, kind of uh, uh, exciting, almost electric thing. I really, really hoped that the second half would not include a Jake DeLone pick. I really did. I was like, okay, Foxy's going to get in there, turn it around. Jake's going to come to himself. It's all going to be fine. I really hope. And then we got that interception. I was like, okay, we're good. But you know what that feel is like. Not just the interceptions, uh, but Christmas morning. Those are That's tying in to hopes. Everything from birthdays to... to uh, uh, to, to, to wishing for gifts to, I mean, even the, you know, I want a pony has a semblance of this kind of wishing and you get this eagerness that's about you. Whether it's tied to reality or not, it exists in there. You know, Christopher Reeve is Superman. Once you choose hope, anything's possible, he says. Hope is the thing that feathers with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. Emily Dickinson. Anne Lamott, hope begins in the dark, the stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. Or Shakespeare, the miserable have no medicine but only hope. But it's hard because some of us just hope for ponies. Right? We just, we really think we'll be fulfilled if Jake doesn't throw the pick. Or worse, we get all jacked up like Christopher Eve and say, if we just hope anything is possible. Y'all, Christopher Eve died. That's not a gig on him. That's the reality of the situation. The hope has to correspond to some type of reality. It's a hope of, a hope of what? A hope toward, a hope something. It can't just be hope. So where do we go with these eager expectations, the blindness and the weakness and the eagerness and the excitement and all that other stuff? What is a Christian to do? Where do we put our hope? Is it just stubborn stuff that waits for the dawn? According to the scriptures, as you see see them, there's a hope toward something. Not just amid something, but toward. And I'd say that it is a hope toward the consummation. The consummation, the end point, the end or the determinate, the, the, the destination or the object, the vision, the way it should be. There's three words that are used here that are really interesting that I, thought, I found uh, 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 in 18 and 21 and 23 as you're going through. And they're revelation, liberation, and redemption. It's a revelation in you. Look, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There will be glory. There will be something beautiful that's worth it, that shows up, that is revealed, that is manifest in us. That will be the end. That will be the consummation. And more than that, liberation for you. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage, we're part of creation, its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That we will be made children of God. And redemption of you, not only so, but we ourselves, we are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, and we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons the redemption of our body. Look, those three words just bring to, cl- to clarity what the deal is with us. What is beautiful about what's going on? It is a full-bodied redemption that we live in. 
full-bodied. Look at the way that it talks about relationships. It talks about um, uh, the adoption, the children of God. That we who need new parents have one. That there's a relational dynamic to our full-bodied salvation, our full-bodied redemption. That part of the things that we hope for is that we will have a father and have a father who loves us and cares for us. We have a new daddy. But there's dignity in that too. Adoption isn't just a term about um, about uh, being uh, without parents and, and then having a parent. It's a place of dignity. As an orphan in the ancient Near East, you did not have the rights and privileges that you uh, that you would want. They were left for the uh, on the on the streets and and uh, uncared for. So so with this this uh, this with Jesus as our big brother, we are adopted into the family, which means our status changes from orphan to child, son, and daughter. It's a dignity thing. And you see glory in verse 18. Glory is a word that means weight or heft, uh, kind of enlightened importance. There's weight to us now. The thing we are hoping in is the consummation when we're fully weighty. C.S. Lewis has an image of what it means to be uh, alive and not yet fully redeemed, and it's that we don't have that much weight. It's as we keep growing, we we get more dense and more, not bigger, more dense, and uh, and uh, and we're able to. Uh, um, we're almost sharp, and, um, and 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 so weighty, and so important, so valuable. And then there's freedom too. What are we hoping for? This freedom from bondage, bondage of our sin, bondage of our relationships, freedom from decay. Verse twenty-one says this means that 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 salvation or the consummation isn't just forgiveness of our sin. But it's healing from the corruption of sin. It's not just the right space before God, the right place before God, but that that which is in us is healed and made right. Not just in us, but in our relationships as well. And don't be a Gnostic. Don't think about heaven or the consummation as Raphael's angels. Like this with chubby cheeks and stuff like that. Don't think of, of, of the clouds and what have you. The Bible says here that the consummation is bodily resurrection. It is earthly. The stuff of earth. What we're hoping for is a redemption of the new humanity into the new heaven and new earth. Where we can feel again and touch and hold. That we'll have bodies that really matter in light of the resurrection of Jesus who has a body. That real tears won't happen anymore on real cheeks. That cancer will be gone. That it will not infect our bodies anymore. That brain tumors, no more. That is our hope. That is the consummation of all things. That relational strife has ended. That is our hope. All things new. All things made right. In one sense, you've got to think about it more earthly. Don't get your hopes up. Get your hopes down into the earth of your relationships. Into the earth of your, of your body. It is a new humanity in a new city that Jesus comes to talk about. In a new garden with a new tree. Earthling stuff that we're called to. Guilt and corruption. Cancer, brain tumors, relationships, all made right. And friends, this is fantastic. 
but it is not a fantasy. It is fantastic, but it is not a fantasy. There is a way to approach this hoping that misses something, that integrates the future into the present in a way that is unfair to the text. These are will-bees and should-bees and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and gonna-bees. It is not a fantasy. There are churches, there are people who would tell you that if you would just have enough faith, that cancer will be gone. Do not believe that. That is a lie. There are people who would say, if you just name it, you can claim it. If you just blab it, you can grab it. (laughs) That's a lie. And that is not the hope about which he speaks here. The hope is set in the future. Now, that doesn't mean that parts of those things aren't true. That doesn't mean that we aren't saved from amazing things. That doesn't mean that future reality is not invading into our very lives right now. But what we hope for ultimately is the consummation of all things. Look, Lazarus was raised from the dead. He died again. He ultimately waits for the resurrection of all things to be restored. Right? One of the most amazing miracles in the New Testament. He died again. Waiting for the resurrection, the consummation of which we all wait, for which we all wait. Now those things break in, but this is not a fantasy. This is not, you know, buying a pony. This isn't, listen, name it, claim it is right. It's just that you're not naming it and you don't get to claim it. Jesus names what the consummation is. And then he claims it for you. Jesus names what blessing you will have. And then he claims it for you. We can't trust our namers. Our namers are off. We're all filled with all sorts of weakness and brokenness. And I'm not able to see all the stuff we talked about where hope springs out of. We can't see. But he does. He names it and claims it on our behalf. And we have to underline the future reality. It is a future grace that invades the present grace. It's grounded in the future. It is a victory already promised, already guaranteed that we now fight for. Martin Luther King used to say, we must accept infinite, excuse me, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. Finite disappointment we can deal with, but never infinite hope. It's taken care of. It's done. The work of the consummation is complete. Now it is being applied in our lives. That's what's happening. And that's what gives us hope to move through things and do things and participate in the very redemption we're living in. My favorite story of it, I really actually know nothing about. But Tom Hawks, my old mentor, the pastor of, uh, senior pastor at, um, at Uptown Church, jacked up his knee so bad one time. He had to get orthoscopic surgery. It was a mess. When he said, he came in one day after, uh, after his surgery and he's cobbling like crazy and he comes in, he goes, I'm healed. I said, what? He goes, this is really cool because he didn't understand either. The knee is completely healed. It doesn't not work anymore. It's going to work perfectly. I just got to keep my rehab up, my physical therapy. But it's, it's not, you're not going to get unhealed in this. It is now healed, operating exactly the way it's supposed to be. I just got to do my rehab. 
It works as a joint ought to work. Now it's just time to do some rehab. Do you see how the hope from the future invades the present? That's what makes us work for justice. That's what makes us work in mercy. That's what makes us move forward in these things. Because it's the consummation is real and true, and it's there. Listen, y'all, my friend who hasn't found a job in three years, we're, we're in a mess. We don't know what to do. Most of us are kind of fix-it people. So we're like, can you do that? Can you try that? Can you, you know, like he hadn't thought of it in the last three years? Try, you know, well, I'd, uh... and he said, you know, the funny thing is that the things I was translating were Proverbs and Job. You could have so picked like Philippians and Ephesians or the end of Revelation, you know, Proverbs and Job. And the reality of those two books is this, that futility is not the last word. I may never get a job, he says, in academics. I will provide for my family because the promises are there. I may do other things. I may not work in the academic world like I want to. But that is not the last word. My hope is not in my circumstances, but in the Lord who promises good things to his people. And of course, then we were really in tears when he kept going there because he knows that in a different way than I do. Hope amid, hope for the consummation. But hope in is the most important point. And we transition from my buddy's words uh, into the rest of the text. Did you see the really interesting passage that kind of was a little bit quirky in verse 20 there? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. It's kind of, uh, you know, talk about mysterious sounding. That's God. Our hope is in God, the author of hope and the author of our stories. You realize what's happening here, don't you? God is not sitting by and watching the fall happen, watching the frustration happen, as if he were wringing his chains too. He's not frustrated. He actually is the one frustrating creation. I know that's kind of hard, but think back to Pastor Howard's uh, uh, sermon and, 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 and uh, reference it if you need to. Listen to it again. But God is in control of all things. Even the frustrations, even the difficulties, even the three years my buddy's out of work. And God himself frustrates it. He's in control, as our Westminster standards say, which is, uh, for those of you who don't know, we're in the Presbyterian Church in America, and we subscribe to these standards that say that, um, that God has foreordained whatever has come to pass. He's thought through it. He's controlled it. He's brought it together. God cursed the ground. He cursed the ground so the toils and tears would be difficult. The toils, the tears, and the tears. He is in control of those things, the author of all our story. It's frustration, but it's subjugation too. And the the, the kind of part that makes you uh, uh, jump up and, and, and get a little bit excited is when after you read um, uh, that, that he's doing the subjugation, it says, for the creation was subject to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, next two words, in hope. And in hope in what? In hope that he would come and bring about the redemption that we long for. 
in hope that He would put us at a point that would shake us up, that would, that would um, that have us broken and weak people who would need to cry out to Him. So it's this, the, father's, uh, the Father's authorship, but it's the Spirit's application in our lives. Look, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit Himself intercedes with groans that we cannot express. What's that mean? That even our hoping and our groaning, He's responsible for. Like you, the given is we don't hope well enough. We don't groan well enough. We don't get the amid or the two. We don't understand the consummation enough. We don't know what to pray for. But He does. That the Spirit Himself is our translator, is our, uh, our advocate. The Spirit Himself takes the grunts of our lives and presents it to the Father through the Son. So come with your groaning. Come with your weakness and your blindness, your cataract eyes. Come to the Spirit with your confusion and your excited eagerness that may be mis-eagerness for the red pony. Come with your inarticulate prayers. The Spirit is our translator. And He's a good translator who's gone for us. You do not know what you ought to pray for. And He translates that for us and makes beauty in us in doing so. Hope in the Father and the Spirit. And though He's not mentioned in this set of verses... You know, obviously, the Son. He's just before and just after these verses. Jesus is basically what Romans is about, just in case you're wondering. I just happened to pick the ten verses that didn't mention his name in it. (laughs) For in this hope we are saved, verse 24 says. The Spirit's application, the Father's authorship, but it was the Son's accomplishment on our behalf that makes this work. It's the Son's accomplishment on our behalf that makes this worse. He takes on our sin. He takes on the corruption. He takes on the sin and corruption of our hopelessness. He takes the sin and corruption on of the people who have injured us. He takes on all those things. And the scripture says the government will be upon his shoulders and he will make all things right. A new heaven and a new earth where every tear is dried. A scripture that says that at the end of the cross it says that it is finished. It being all things, the redemption that has occurred. Yes, it's got a future state invading into the, back into our reality now. But it's Jesus who does this for us. I just want to close by reading you two scriptures. Two scriptures, one from the book of Hebrews and one from the book of 1 Peter. Seemingly, and you should also know this about Romans, not a great time to be a Christian. Romans... It's probably a time when um, uh, it looks as if they were using uh, Christians as candles for the, um, uh, uh, the Colosseum so they could light up uh, the place so you could see people fight. Um, this is probably the time of Nero. Hebrews is an awkward time, not a great time to be a Christian either. Uh, people are bagging on the faith at this point. It's a little later in church history. Um, not sure what's going on or, or how it is, but there seems to be a point of significant uh, um, oppression and people um, starting to get injured, even though not, not necessarily all the way to death, but uh, 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 not an easy time to be a Christian. And First Peter, the same. And so what would you do? How would you look towards it? How would you, do, how would you live in this world? 
Well, you'll see that the answer is hope. Hope amid the craziness of our lives. Hope toward the consummation. And hope in the triune God. God the Father, Spirit, the Applier, and the Son, the Accomplisher. Let me read these to you. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of His purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, that's us, He confirmed it with an oath. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, the most holy of holy places. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become our high priest forever. And then 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed on the last day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are our living hope. That because of you, because you have given us an undefiled, an unbreakable future, that we can risk it all in the pursuit of justice here. We thank you that you're honest about the way the world is, but not just honest, in control of it. Lord, have your way with us and our hope. Spirit, translate our longings and our desires. We ask in your name. Amen.